I'm glad to be here in the Word with you. We are doing this study of finding real power, the power of God. And these last week and this week, we're working our way through chapter 4 on the specific topic of never giving up. By the grace of God, Paul is an example of what it means to persevere. Oftentimes, we see ministry leaders or pastors who, who appear to really have a lot of things going well and easy for them. We know that that's not true. But there are ministries that are in the human measurement sense easier at times. When we look at the life of Paul, do you ever see easy? Never. This is a man who learned what it meant to suffer for Jesus' sake and to never give up. I trust that our hearts will be encouraged and strengthened as we study this text this morning. Open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And let's read verses 7 through the end of the chapter. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul said, But we have this treasure, speaking of the gospel, in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Many of you know that this is a classic biblical text on suffering and perseverance and the faithful ministry of the gospel. Not just for missionaries, not just for pastors, but for all of God's people who are all called to share the good news. I'm sure many of you recognize some of the well-known verses that we just read. When a follower of Christ suffers deeply, these verses become precious to them. And when a person meditates on them, they begin to recognize that trials will test their perspectives like no other. This chapter is all about our perspective of reality. And so to help engage our minds right here at the start, let me ask this question. Is what you and I just read, how we view our suffering and sacrifice for the sake of the gospel? 
when we go through difficult times, are those the thoughts that come to our mind? Are these thoughts that we can resonate with? Are these truths that we hold dear and hold on to to persevere well? All I can tell you is that when I study this text, and the more I study this text, the more I realize that my perspective still needs a lot of work. My focus still needs sharpening, especially when it comes to this kind of daily dying for the sake of others who need the Lord. What's interesting is that not only are these verses a divinely empowering perspective, they are reality. This is not positive thinking. This is not religious thought. This is physical and spiritual reality. This is temporal and eternal reality. And reality is absolute. It is concrete. You know, it is what it is. But perspective? Now that can be found just about anywhere on the map. Reality never lies to us, but our perspective can. And it's the lies and the misunderstandings, sincere as they may be, that yield disappointment. And it's disappointment that weakens us, that makes us want to quit, to give up on God, to yield to temptation, etc. You know what it's like to believe a lie, and then to find out it was a lie. And in the end, you do not receive the promise. Instead, you receive a sorrow, or a wound, or a loss, etc. And that defeats us. It weakens us. We've all been there. That's why it is so imperative, as we see in these verses, so imperative that believers know their physical and spiritual reality, their temporal and their eternal reality. And Paul drops a series of extraordinary reality truths in this text. We're going to look at seven of them this morning if you'd like to take notes. If our worldview is off, is misguided, then our expectation is going to be off. Our approach to life is going to be off. Our emotion is going to be off. And eventually the results are off. Everything is off. As we, studied this, as we study this morning, God is going to really challenge and defy some of the popular and all-too-natural human perspectives of reality, particularly our view of suffering and purpose in it. And the prayer in all this is that we will align ourselves, our faith, our belief, our behavior, with what the Scripture teaches in these verses. Our prayer is that we will turn to the Lord as we saw in chapter 3 so that we will, by the grace of God, experience what Paul said. We do not lose heart. Even in the face of death, we do not lose heart. Let's pray and then we'll dive into these verses. Heavenly Father, we are so privileged to have the wisdom of God revealed to us. To, t to teach us the truths of reality that we could never self-discover. Should we live a thousand years, there are truths here we would never even find. And yet you give them through Christ and through your word so freely, so wonderfully. And so as we, we begin this study again this Sunday morning, Lord, we acknowledge that your word is truth and that we need it and that you are the one who can open our eyes to it. 
That is our prayer and that is our expectation, Lord. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name, amen. Beginning in verse 7, Paul said, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Reality number one, salvation is invaluable. It cannot be price tagged. Paul uses the word treasure here. And so what is this treasure that he's referring to? Of course, it's, it's the salvation that he described so wonderfully in the prior verse. He described it as the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The glory of God in the face of Christ, whom many of them had just seen. The glory of God, the saving grace, the mercy, the righteousness, all of that that, 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 that it touches on is found in the face, in the person, in the being of Jesus Christ. Paul is especially talking here when he says we have this treasure in earthen vessels. He, he's talking about salvation personally experienced. Paul says we have this treasure. Go with me to Matthew chapter 13 for just a minute. Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 to 46. This is Jesus teaching his disciples in parables. And he said in Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a what? A treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now the lesson in these parables obviously is not that you should buy your friend's house out from under him because you found gold. That would be a classic example of taking a parable out of context and beyond its single primary truth, the lesson it's trying to teach. The lesson in these parables was to point out the priceless treasure that we have in our salvation in Christ Jesus. The priceless treasure we have in the, the kingdom of heaven, in the family of God. Priceless treasure. Something that is worth more than anything and everything we can possibly own in this world. Back to 2 Corinthians. Paul sees the gospel as that kind of treasure. His greatest prized possession, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And thankfully, we don't have to buy that treasure because everything we own isn't enough to make that purchase. You know well that that purchase required the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of the spotless Lamb of God. And because God paid the price with the blood of His own Son, this treasure is actually a free gift. I know that many of our minds go to Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But the fact that it's a free gift does not diminish in any way its value. Think about that. If someone simply handed me a million dollars, well, first off, I'd take and run. But if somebody handed me a million dollars and they gave it to me for free, it's still worth a million dollars. You see the point here, the, the gospel, the saving mercy and love and righteousness of God is the believer's greatest treasure. 
The irony in this is that so many people who call themselves Christians hardly see the overwhelming treasure in their salvation. This is a life-changing factor. To many, it's just a ticket to heaven that sits in their pocket with all of their other treasures. The best of both worlds, they think, right? No, not if we dare to read the Scripture. Not if we look at the life of Jesus or the life of Paul and all of the disciples. On the contrary, their treasures were not of this world. Matthew 6, 19 to 20, 21, couldn't be clearer. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Christian friend, if you and I are going to find real power, the strength to never give up as a follower of Christ, it is going to be because we absolutely treasure, we treasure alone the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, our great salvation. We hold it tightly to our heart. Our lives revolve around it. We guard it. We delight in it. We bank on it. It holds the chief place of our affections and our hope. Now, to be sure, none of us treasures our salvation like we should. Room for all of us to grow. But that should be the direction that our hearts are moving. Paul is able to say verses 8 and 9 in chapter 4 here. That's the, uh, the afflicted but not crushed text. He was able to say those things because of the treasure he found in Christ. If a believer cannot say verses 8 and 9, think about this. If we cannot say verses 8 and 9, it is because we don't have the treasure. Or at best, we've lost sight of the treasure to some degree. We've forgotten its great price. This is why we preach the gospel Sunday after Sunday, after Sunday after Sunday. We never get to the point where we need something besides Christ or something in addition to our salvation, the mercy and the grace of God. You could perhaps hear someone saying, yes, I know the good news of salvation, and I know that Jesus as Lord is important. I get that. But what are the other secrets to standing firm and never giving up? I just want to know how to keep my marriage together. I just want to know how to pay my bills and get through another week. How to beat temptation when it keeps beating me. What are the other secrets? Christian friend, the only secret is that there is no other secret. I marvel at the fact that Paul is still preaching the gospel theme all throughout these verses we're coming across. He is sticking by his story. All of the New Testament keeps pointing over and over to our grace-endowed salvation that relationship that we have with Christ, and with the Father and with the Spirit in us. Verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. Paul sees the treasure in the mercy, and he treasures it. 
It really is that simple. It really is that focused. After having the privilege of being saved for about 38 years, I'm struck by the fact that the more I study Scripture, the more I keep coming back to this supreme treasure. All of the authors are pointing to it. We're talking about the surpassing glory of the new covenant that Paul was speaking so wonderfully about in the prior chapter. The new covenant of the love and the mercy and the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We've been hitting on this week after week as we come across it in the text. If only one thing impacts us in this four or five month study, perhaps it should be the magnificence of Christ Jesus and our salvation in and through Him. The glory of God in the face of Christ. Is it really possible that it is the glory of salvation in Christ that gives us peace when we can't pay our bills? Is it really possible that it is the treasure of our salvation that gives us unexplainable peace when we get the doctor report that we feared? Is it really possible that treasuring our relationship with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is what saves our marriage? Yes, yes, and a thousand yeses. You know this, I know this. Granted, there are a myriad of practical implications that stem from us treasuring our glorious salvation. That treasure will impact every nook and cranny of our being. Everything we do through the week will be touched by that kind of treasure. But the, the problem often lies in trying to identify the bullet list of implications, the list of do's and don'ts, apart from the surpassing glory of salvation itself. Just tell me what I have to do to get my kids to turn out right. Just tell me what I have to do to get rid of these problems. And I'm not talking about the kids. You know, we're talking about the stresses, the illnesses, the loneliness, perhaps the, the sometimes frightening unknowns of the future, etc. Friends, it is not in the lists of do's and don'ts. It is in the person who perfectly and patiently teaches us how we then should live. Teaches us through His Word, through His Spirit, one day at a time. But in the person who also transforms and empowers us to live like Him. According to His good and acceptable and perfect will. Romans chapter 2, 12, chapter 12, verse 2. That's what we call grace. And it all comes back to this treasure. If I could only pray one thing for my church family and for myself, it would most certainly be that we would treasure Christ more and more. We're talking about worship. Everywhere we turn in Scripture, we see that the lesson in the pages of Scripture comes back to worship. Knowing and worshiping Christ in His supreme glory and reveling in the fact that we are children of the Heavenly Father, our treasure. 
Now, we focused a good deal of our limited time this morning focused on this first key word. And there are many more to cover. But I am certain that if we miss this fundamental truth, the rest of the chapter will be for naught. Try not treasuring Christ and see what happens when you're afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down. We've seen that bit in before. We've tried it. We've been there. But praise God, as we were reminded in chapter 3, He lifts the veil and opens our eyes. He shines the light when we turn to Christ. His surpassing power kicks in. Everything changes when a person turns to the Lord and receives and savors their treasure of salvation in Christ Jesus. Paul goes on to say, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels, jars of clay, mere mortal bodies. Reality number two, we are human. Earthen vessels, he calls us. This word historically referred to your basic everyday clay pots. Paul says that's who we are. No super saints, no mighty warriors, no theological ninjas, just bond servants. We are earthen vessels. We have to appreciate the humble view of our human reality that Paul keeps bringing himself and us back to. As we touched on last week, there is power in these realistic perspectives. Stepping up onto the pedestal or, or stepping into the spotlight and seeing oneself as gifted by God and gifted for God, those are most certain paths to weakness and defeat because God opposes the proud. Even if we were gifted or capable or had those special talents, what do those look like when the God of the universe opposes them? Puny is far too magnificent and exaggerated and powerful a definition. Deceitful is the word that comes to mind. Desperately wicked and filthy rags are some of the compliments I seem to recall Scripture giving the greatness of man. On the contrary, the reality is that God lovingly and with all power puts his treasure in earthen vessels. The verse continues, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. How many times does Paul have to say that? We've seen those words over and over for, through the first three and a half chapters, now four. He has to say it a lot. And why, did, why does he keep pounding that nail? It's because it's one of the nails that holds the entire structure together. It's a linchpin, we could say. Here's the definition of a physical linchpin. A pin passed through the end of an axle to keep a wheel in position. God help us not to be wheels that have fallen off the axle of His grace. Have you ever seen a car going down the freeway at 60 miles an hour? With the axle on the ground and the wheel long gone. I saw that about 15 years ago. An old pickup truck pulled right up alongside me on the freeway, 60 miles an hour, and all of a sudden the front end of his truck dropped. That tire rolled out of sight down the freeway. You can only imagine 
the horrific grating sound on the asphalt and the sparks flying and the panic he caused in the rest of us on the freeway. That is what self-sufficient Christians look like in the church. A lot of noise, a lot of sparks, but it is not the surpassing greatness of the power of God. Let's look at some verses that define and remind us of God's power. There's just countless verses, but here are a few. And, and notice the depth of understanding and appreciation that each of these writers has for the power of God. 1 Chronicles 29, verse 11 to 13. This is King David praying. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. David also said in Psalm 62, 11, Our God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. The prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 10, verse 12, It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding, he has stretched out the heavens. There's a man who has pondered the power of God. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1.20 speaks of the eternal power of God. There may be apparently some strong leaders in the history of the world, emperors, etc. But every one of them died. Their power fully ceased to, ceased to exist at some point. Paul acknowledges the eternal power of God. Ephesians 1:18 to 22. I pray that the eyes of your under your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of, the inherit, of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Reality number three, God's power wins. It's all about the power source, the trustworthiness of the power, the consistency and dependability of the power, the assurance of the power. You and I don't really want to be in a church with strong Christians. We want to be in a church where there is a strong God, a place where everyday people are strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. A place where people put on the armor of God and not the armor of the law or the armor of their own self-defense. The surpassing greatness of the power is in God and not in ourselves. You know, we want to know what that kind of steady, strong power looks like in a person. Verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. Reality number four, it's not over. The final bell has not been rung. 
Our defeat has not been declared and will not be declared. We'll look at just a little bit of the depth in each of those phrases Paul just used. But we need to recognize that the main point is not in the individual words, but in the whole. Paul is saying there is nothing, there is no amount of affliction or perplexity or persecution or beating, etc., that is greater than the surpassing greatness of the power of God. And that is why we never give up. Let's very quickly consider the four terms Paul used. He said, afflicted in every way, but not crushed. That's talking about painful pressure from all four sides in life, but not crushed. King James says, troubled on every side, yet not distressed. I don't doubt that many of us have had times in life where it seemed like everything was indeed falling apart. Paul says, even then we're not crushed. Secondly, perplexed but not despairing. I look at that and I think, aren't you glad to know that even the apostle Paul didn't always know what in the world God was doing? Did you know that it's okay? It's perfectly normal to not have God figured out all the time. I'm positive that I will ask the question, why, Lord, until the day I die? There will be situations and losses and injustices and pains that I will never understand this side of glory. Paul says, me too. I am perplexed, but I do not despair. There is such a muscle-building lesson there for believers. Think about this. You and I do not have to understand to have hope. We don't have to figure out every situation to appreciate and rest in God's sovereign will. But isn't the tendency to understand, and if not doubt, our natural tendency? So often we assume that because we don't understand our sorrows or, or our loss or our pain, the only response left is that something must be wrong with us or with life, or, or with God. And we soon end up dabbling in despair. And one inch at a time, we begin to lose heart. We feel hopeless. And next thing you know, we're sucked into the current. Paul says, no. We are perplexed. Life is complicated. We are bewildered at times at what God is doing. But the surpassing greatness of His power keeps us from despair. We do not lose heart. Thirdly, he said, persecuted but not forsaken. Let that sink in. Persecuted but not forsaken. Why is, that the, why is it that the moment tragedy strikes, people so often assume that God has abandoned them? Why is it that proponents of the prosperity gospel Peddle the idea that if you're suffering, it's because you don't have enough of the Spirit in you. And you obviously haven't given enough money to the church. Quite the opposite. Paul says in chapter 11, we'll get there sometime, I have been in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, but not forsaken. Christian friend, you and I can take our deepest pain we can line up that entire list of our very real and agonizing woes and spell it all out and tag on the end, but not forsaken. Never forsaken. Because God promises to never leave and to never forsake. I've obviously never been imprisoned for my faith, but should the day come, God help me to anchor into those words persecuted but not forsaken fourthly struck down but not destroyed just because the score is 10 to 2 in the bottom of the ninth against us that doesn't mean the game is lost what does Paul say in the face of tribulation distress persecution famine nakedness peril or sword he says in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us And note the exact wording of Romans 8.38. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to what? Separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The believer's reality is that nothing can or ever will separate us from the love that we need the most. The problem is that some believers aren't convinced of it. They don't see it or or they've forgotten it to some degree. By grace, faith is convinced in the surpassing greatness of the power of God. Verse 10, he says, always carrying about in the body, the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who, are, who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. Reality number five, suffering is beneficial. Now I know that's not what, all we, 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 what we all paid for to get in here today. But that is the reality. And we must understand this reality to appreciate and fully experience the power of God. Suffering is beneficial. Here's the problem. Too many Christians are afraid to die daily for the life of others. Too afraid to suffer loss so others can gain. Too afraid to endure pain so that others can be healed. We're, not, we're talking not about the temporal, physical benefit, but the spiritual. Why is it that we, and, and I put myself at the head of this list, why, is that we are so, why are we so hesitant to suffer and to give up the temporal things of our life for the eternal benefit of others? 
We're talking about the very benefit of mercy that we have already ourselves fully received. Verse 1. Is it possible that to some degree we've simply lost sight of the glorious reality of the treasure of our salvation and our mission? Absolutely. When a person is convinced of the surpassing glory of their salvation and their mission to share it with others, they carry about in their body the dying of Jesus. They allow themselves to constantly be delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. They let physical death take its toll. Why? Look at the text. So that the life of Jesus will be manifested through their dying body. It's so that the life of Jesus in the new covenant may be manifested in their mortal flesh. It's so others will find life. This is the paradox of our mission. So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. There's an incredible principle at play here. Our death to self equals their life in Christ. I'll say it again. Our death to self equals their life to Christ and in Christ. I have a burning question in my mind and on my heart these days. Lord, why aren't there more people being saved? Is it okay to ask that question? How come I am personally not leading more people into the family of God and into the light of the glory of the gospel? Well, there are, there are many factors, of course, and perhaps many answers, but here's the answer I hear from the text today. Chris, are you always carrying about in your body the dying of Jesus? Are you constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake? Are you willing to let death work in you? Go there, and then you will see life in others. Paul went there. And he saw the surpassing greatness of the power of God bring life to others. Therefore, he could not lose heart. One might say, Chris, don't you think you're being a little dramatic? I mean, constantly being delivered over to death, is that really what we're supposed to do? That's an honest question. And I ask myself, am I being too dramatic with the text? But then I read Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. Luke 9, verse 23 and 24. And Jesus was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. No, I don't think we're all supposed to get physically beaten up like Paul. But I do think we're supposed to do what those verses just said. We are to spend our lives for Jesus' sake. And when we do, we will assuredly see the surpassing greatness of the power of God at work in us and through us. It's how all the pages of Scripture and history reveal the power of God and demonstrate what he has done for person after person after person, often great sinner after great sinner after great sinner, weak person after weak person. This is the way history has always worked. Why would it be any different for us? 
I am crucified with Christ. Verse 13. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also do speak. Knowing, that's a key word, knowing, that there, that is the foundation of the belief. This is the focal point. This is the backing of faith. He says, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and will present us with you. That's where you drop the mic. Boom. Paul just pierced the bullseye. We do not lose heart. We are not crushed. We do not despair. We're not forsaken or destroyed. We never give up because we believe. We know that he who raised the Lord Jesus, that is God through his own power, raised Jesus from the dead. He who raised Jesus will also, will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. Paul has this strong faith for, for them too. It reminds me, we need to be strong in the faith for each other and allow others to be strong in the faith for us when we need it. Reality number six, conviction is required. And the conviction, the solid belief that Paul specifically refers to is the belief in the resurrection, the life-giving power of God that was revealed at the cross when Satan thought he had defeated the Savior. Christ's resurrection, the conviction of it, and, and not only his, but ours as well. There is power to be found in the reality and the hope of the resurrection. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that greater reality, that more glorious and eternal truth shapes our perspective of our present sufferings and mission and even our view of death itself. It's why the songwriter said, it is not death to die, to leave this weary road and join the saints who dwell on high, who found their home with God. It is not death to close the eyes long dimmed by tears and wake in joy before your throne, delivered from our fears. Oh, Jesus, conquering the grave, your precious blood has power to save. Those who trust in you will in your mercy find that it is not death to die. It is not death to fling aside this earthly dust and rise with strong and noble wing to live among the just. It is not death to hear the key unlock the door that sets us free from mortal years to praise you evermore. Oh, Jesus, conquering the grave, your precious blood has power to save. Those who trust in you will in your mercy find that it is not death to die. Those words are by Bob Coughlin. He believes. He's convinced. And so can you and I, and so should you and I. We have every right and every reason to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Paul said, we believe, therefore we speak. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Verse 15, for all things are for your sake, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Reality number seven, our last one for today, for their sake. This is one of the great Christ-like, humbling, and loving motivations we are to live by. 
Did you catch that first behemoth phrase in the verse? All things are for your sakes. Many Christians are willing to do anything for God. But do some for the other person across the room? We'll think about that. All things are for your sakes. Now sure, there's a practical reality that has to be lived out and observed day by day to make ends meet for ourselves. But what would the church look like if we all strive to be living by the standard of verse 15? What if that became our sincere motto towards one another? All things are for your sakes. Undoubtedly, there is weakness in Christians and in the body of Christ. There, there is discouragement and confusion and strife because it's more something like 10% is for your sake, the rest is mine. Or 50% for the ministry, the work of the Lord, 50% for me. And we're not talking about tithe and money. We're talking about life. We tend to compartmentalize, don't we? Why not make this our prayer? Lord, I want my whole life to be for the sake of others. Matthew 25, 40. Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Why not make our prayer, Lord, I want my whole life to be for the sake of others, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. My life for my spouse, my life for my children, my life for my church family, my life for the lost. God, help me to be a grace spreader. We want to cast it often and we want to cast it far so it can impact more and more people. It's absolutely true that the church is not about numbers. It's just about more and more. And it's about people. Notice the wording of the verse. It's about the grace of God causing more and more people to give more and more thanks. That's the abounding thanks to the glory of God, the supremely surpassing glory of God. Christian friend, do you and I have a burning passion to see verse 15 come alive in our life and in our church family? I dare say it's good and healthy for us to be discontent with the amount of spiritual fruit in our lives and in the church. It's okay to say, thank you, Lord, for that one person that got saved. But Lord, would you give me two? Give me two more. Give me 20. Would you give us 200? Yes, we leave the numbers in God's hands and in His sovereign will. But let us not dare be found failing to spread grace to more and more. Is there a very fine line there that dabbles into a false sense of righteousness that is more akin to spiritual laziness than it is God's sovereign will for the elect. The miracle belongs to God, but the message belongs to us. And for that reason, Paul said, I do all things for your sakes. I spare no expense. I endure any suffering, any cost for your spiritual benefit. And not just for you, but for more and more. May God impress those words deep on our minds and give us a heart that begs God for more and more. 
all for the praise and thanksgiving and glory of God. If our ushers would please come and prepare to serve communion. Let me read verses 16 to 18, which we'll look at uh, when we pick up and again in three weeks. I'm very much looking forward to having uh, Caleb uh, bring the word to us next week. Then we'll have family camp the week after that with Pastor Mark or someone else preaching here. And then we'll pick back up in this text, verses 16, the week after. This, these last few verses tie into what we have just studied as well as what is about to come in the next chapter regarding eternal perspective. Another part of the believer's reality. How real is eternity for you and me? Verses 16 to 18, Therefore we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. There's another one of the believer's realities. For momentary light affliction. Paul is now referring back to what he just mentioned in verses 8 and 9. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We take this bread and this cup because of something we cannot see. Is Jesus Christ our Savior. His love for us. His forgiveness of our sins. The hope He gives us of the resurrection. His body was broken and His blood was shed so that we could freely receive the treasure of God's love and forgiveness. God's mercy and Christ's righteousness. If you'd like to know more about what it means to be a Christian, to be, to be a follower of Christ, then please speak with me or one another here after the service. We, we love to show people what the Bible says, and you can decide for yourselves. If you're already a follower of Christ, and you are treasuring your salvation, then I invite you to partake of this reminder of what Christ has done for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the words of eternal life. Thank you for truth. Thank you for being so good to us as to reveal reality to us. You do give us glimpses into your will, glimpses into your sovereign good plan. And you not only speak truth to us a day at a time so patiently, thank you, Lord, but you also patiently and daily transform us and empower us to prove what your good and perfect and acceptable will is. God, help us to be a people who treasure you, knowing that you alone are God. As we partake of this cup and this bread, we worship you, Lord, and we thank you for the treasure we have in our salvation. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.